I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, each year when we come to the feast of Jesus' baptism, the question that always looms large is why on earth would Jesus need to be baptized? What makes it so puzzling is not only how we understand our own need for baptism and how verse 4 but also how verse 4 of our passage from Mark says that John the Baptist had been proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If Jesus, as the Son of God, was without any sin, why would he seek to be baptized? Apparently, John the Baptist himself had this same question. In Matthew's account of this episode, Matthew reports that John was inclined to refuse to baptize Jesus, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Now, there are surely many reasons that Jesus chose to be baptized, some of which I've covered on this feast day in years past. I know last year on this feast day I spoke about it being Jesus' baptism being an act of submission to God the Father. If Jesus came to earth to live the life that we've all failed to, then foundational to that is a public commitment of submission to God. I also ha- highlighted how the Father's response to Jesus is equally important. With His booming words of affirmation, You are my beloved Son. And with you, I am well pleased. The Father shows his eagerness to meet Jesus' human needs for unconditional love and security. And in doing so, the Father frees Jesus from any need to look to the world for those needs to be met in ways that might compromise his own faithfulness. Well, those reasons for Jesus' baptism are important and true. But the purpose of Jesus' baptism I want to focus on in this homily today is perhaps best explained in the style of some Chuck Norris hyperbole. You guys remember Chuck Norris? He's a martial artist and longtime B-movie actor, if I may say so, who started to make it big in the 1980s with roles in action movies like Missing in Action and Delta Force. Although I wasn't even born until 1983, so I remember him more for his starring role in Walker, Texas Ranger, a show on CBS that began in 93. But after Walker went off the air, and all the, everyone's got done mourning about that, Chuck Norris became most well known for, at least to some uh, Generation X and Millennials, for something known as Chuck Norris facts. These were humorous but absurd claims about Norris's toughness and abilities that people began submitting to a website called chucknorrisfacts.net. This phenomenon began, phenomenon might be overstating it, but this trend began in 2005. Examples of these satirical facts include that Chuck Norris's calendar goes straight from March 31st to April 2nd because no one fools Chuck Norris. Or that Chuck Norris once climbed Mount Everest in 15 minutes, 14 of which he was building a snowman at the bottom. 
You know, this would be a lot easier to deliver these if I wasn't in an empty room. Use a laugh track or something. Thank you, Eva. Or when Chuck Norris was born, he drove his mom home from the hospital. Chuck Norris can kill two stones with one bird, and so on. People just kept submitting these, and such that there are now over 5,300 Chuck Norris facts on that website, which includes even more examples like Chuck Norris doesn't dial the wrong number, you pick up the wrong phone. Chuck Norris makes onions cry. Chuck Norris tells Simon what to do. And when Chuck Norris enters a room, he doesn't turn the lights on, he turns the dark off. So at this point, you may be wondering how these jokes could possibly be relevant to this sermon. Well, in a humorous way, they may provide a formula for explaining the point I want to make about Jesus' baptism. And that is that when Jesus got baptized in the Jordan River, he didn't get cleansed of sin. The water got Jesus. Jesus didn't get baptized so much as the water got Jesus. In other words, Jesus wasn't baptized because he had any sins to be, that needed to be washed away, but instead to purify the water, to consecrate this unholy earthly element to be for us a means not just to cleanse us from sin, but to join us to Jesus. See, before Jesus is baptized in our passage, we from Mark 1, we saw that John taught that while he merely baptized with water, after him would come one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit, would make baptism more than just water. And sure enough, when Jesus is baptized, all the gospel writers report this outward sign occurring of the Holy Spirit going into Jesus. Now I have to say, the translation that we've been given here is a bit toned down from that. It says that the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus or on, alighted on Jesus. But many scholars have pointed out that when Mark elsewhere intends to use the preposition in Greek that means upon, he uses a different Greek word than the word he uses here. The word he uses here can mean upon, but it can also and more likely means, Mark means, into, that the Holy Spirit goes into Jesus, possesses him. So ever since Jesus was baptized, baptism assures us that we have been joined with Christ, that when paired with faith, the triune God dwells within us by the Holy Spirit. Now one notion that often gets tossed around when talking about faith and baptism in Christianity is this idea that through baptism and faith in Christ, we have been given access to God. But today I want to suggest to you that that notion of access may understate what Christ has done for us and may not quite hit the nail on the head in the most helpful way. It sort of minimizes what he's done for us and even sanitizes the life of faith in a manner that gives us the impression that, that 
the life of faith is safe, that, that we can control God, that we now have access to Him when we want it. But his scholar on the Gospel of Mark, Mark, Brian Blunt, explains something much more significant is transpiring in the baptism of Jesus. See, Blunt reminds us that up until this point in history, there's been this buffer zone that has existed between God and humanity ever since the Garden of Eden as a result of what? Of human sin. This buffer zone. Heaven was thought to be the place of God and Earth, the place of man. But also, from Moses all the way to the time of Christ, God's presence on earth was restricted to a place called the Holy of Holies, first in the tabernacle and later in the temple. God's presence dwelt there in this room separated by a curtain that in the temple era was a curtain that was 60 feet tall, 20 feet wide, and 4 inches thick. And nobody went past that curtain except for one day a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement would enter on behalf of all people seeking forgiveness for all their sins. However, at Jesus' baptism, Mark tells us that something happens to that buffer zone. He tells us that the the heavens are torn open. The Greek word Mark uses there is the word for rip, schizo. Which Mark only uses one other time in his gospel, in chapter 15, when he says that the temple curtain we're talking about rips miraculously from top to bottom as Jesus breathes his last. Which is to say... That in Christ, that buffer zone between us and God has been ripped open. But not so that we have access to God. No, that's because God has come to us. God has access to us. In baptism, we grant that. Now you may say, well, access to God, God's access to us, potato, potato, You know, it's all the same, right? It's not. See, the problem with the emphasis of Jesus giving us access to God is it's a consumeristic way of thinking. So we're going to be prone toward it, living in the consumeristic society of the West. But it's like reducing God to a commodity or a service that we can access when we want, Like like God's a Netflix subscription or a library card or something. That we can avail ourselves of God when we want Him or when we feel like we really need Him, but that otherwise He's kind of distant? That's just not what I see in the Gospel. The good news of Christ is more accurately that God has come near to us as we just celebrated in Christmas. And if it is in our sin that we fend off God's overtures, If that's what we do in our sin, we fend him off. Baptism, coupled with faith, is our way of, of saying okay, of agreeing, of giving God access to us, to our lives. Of giving God permission to be the Lord of our lives and to begin the process of transforming our character and making it more like the perfect character of his son. So understanding Jesus' baptism in this way of him consecrating something earthly and unholy and making it holy 
That should impact how we think about our own baptism and about how God has approached us in Christ. But it should also make a difference for how we think about how we view and relate to the fallen world around us. Since part of the grace signified by baptism is, of course, Jesus cleansing us from our sin before God, all too often the church has jumped from that to giving the impression or outright teaching that the primary task of a Christian after baptism then, once Jesus has made us clean, our primary task is to stay clean, at least externally. There is often an emphasis, an overemphasis on Sinful behaviors, especially, right? Much more than sinful attitudes. And so in order to do that, if we get that impression from the teaching we've sat under, in order to stay clean, many Christians conclude and many churches teach the importance of staying away from those who are sinful. There's even been a whole movement of churches building entire campuses with everything a Christian might ever need in this society of ours, like a coffee shop, need number one, of course, right? Or a gym to work out in, or childcare, or Christian education. All of this aimed at providing environments where Christians can remain separate and unstained by the world. Now look, I'm not saying there's never a place to separate oneself from sin, You know, for example, it might be a good idea for an alcoholic to avoid the beer aisle at the grocery store or to avoid the liquor store altogether. Not to pick on them, just an example. But religion that is all about separating people from the world and keeping people in line, what I might call sort of a law and order Christianity, this is something very different from the kingdom gospel we see revealed in the scriptures. In fact, what it really shares a lot in common with is the religion of the Pharisees that Jesus came critiquing. And ironically, I say this with some hesitation, but law and order Christianity, as I'm characterizing it, has a lot more in common with Islam and other religions of the world than with the gospel of the grace of the kingdom of God. But unfortunately, the bad fruit of this form of religious Christianity includes producing tribalism, includes producing this us-versus-them mentality, and it's led many Christians to conclude that the primary way they can be faithful to God is through culture wars, is through creating a Christian environment or nation out there by defeating the infidels, right? Whether in politics, imposing our values on the infidels, right? Again, a lot of similarities with Islam. But this attitude towards sin is actually in stark contrast to the posture we see our Lord take, who has never loved our sin, but has loved us despite our sin and come close to us, even in our sin. So rather than seeking to separate believers more and more from the world, Jesus seeks to distinguish us from the world, yes. But that's by an inner change in us, an inner change in our character, and then to send us back into the world time and again 
to be a friend to sinners like he is and was. And so while much of Christian religion is consumed with keeping that which is unholy from contaminating one's supposed holiness, what Jesus demonstrates in his baptism instead is his holiness decontaminating the unholy. And I put forth that he intends the same for us. That we might learn to soak so thoroughly in his love and peace, right? In his nearness to us. And that that would have a decontaminating effect on, on us. And then our presence would be changed, right? In our interactions with other, others, which would have a decontaminating effect on others, right? That doesn't mean everybody we walk around is going to immediately confess you know, convert to Christ, but it's a, a more realistic incremental ministry that in time may lead to people's hearts change. Because in encountering the love of Christ in us, that might edge them a little further into God's plans for them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.